We're going to take a look at God's Word, and one of the things that's very significant that Mickey said, Mickey had one of those afternoons. I had one of those afternoons, too, and I concluded the same thing that he did before he did, that God has an appointment with someone or someones here tonight to speak in a very special way, because throughout our times on Sunday nights during the summer, we've been talking about getting to know Jesus. Not getting to know about Jesus, but getting to know Jesus. And this is the climax of those messages. This is getting to know Jesus in the sense that there is salvation in Christ and Christ alone. So if anybody is wondering, if anybody is thinking maybe there are other ways of salvation, God directed you here tonight to hear this. And for all the rest of us, or if every one of us knows Christ in a personal way, it's simply a time to be reminded of some great rejoicing, because our salvation is something that is absolutely fantastic. If we ever stop to think about it, it's a great, great thing, and I want to present that to us tonight as that great thing. So salvation through Christ alone. One of the things that we try to teach all of our new members is our doctrinal principles. We have 11 of them. One of them has to do with salvation. So our new member's handbook includes this from our list of doctrinal principles. It's also in the front of the hymnals if you ever want to refer to this or any of the other principles. But here's what it states in our principle. We believe in one condition of eternal salvation. It's not popular today to be that intolerant. It's not popular to say there's only one way. It sounds arrogant sometimes to say it's my way or the wrong way. But this is based on God's Word, not based on our arrogance. We believe in one condition of eternal salvation, which is accepting by faith, through God's grace, the Lord Jesus Christ as one's personal Savior. Again, not someone to be known about, but someone to be known. Personal Savior. And we believe this results in a godly sorrow for sin and a godly life. That's the result. That doesn't get us salvation. Somebody is trying to live a godly life. Somebody is trying to be sorry for his sins. That's not the means of salvation. That comes afterwards because now God the Holy Spirit lives within us and we have the power to do some of those things. And that's what God intends. He expects Christians who've received the Lord Jesus Christ to actually live that out. I've already answered a question that I'm about to ask, but I want to ask it again anyway so we can think about it. How many roads lead to heaven? And I think it's pretty clear that we've already answered that, that there's only one. But I want to emphasize that, and I'll emphasize that over and over again tonight, because this is more important than a life and death issue. How can anything be more important than that? Because we're talking about eternal life and eternal death. And so this is something that is much more important than simply physical life and physical death. We're talking about forever. Does anybody know how long forever is? We've always had an end of things, haven't we? We have no idea. In fact, it boggles our mind when we start to think about eternity and forever. But we're dealing with forever issues here before us. One of the things that to me is very, very special, God wants us to understand our eternal destiny is settled in Christ. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, it's as clear as it can be. And 1 John's a great book. And if you were with us this morning, you would have heard Pastor Kevin talk about the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence that we have that we're living a life for the Lord Jesus Christ that shows the fruit. It shows His Holy Spirit is living within us. 
John gives, in, in 1 John, gives a number of ways Christians can identify whether they're really in the faith or not. He talks about important things like loving one another as an indication of part of that fruit that belongs to a believer in Christ. And then he concludes, after giving several of those, he concludes in, in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants us to have that assurance. He wants us to know. And part of that knowledge, part of that assurance comes on the fact that we are actually living out the salvation that He's already given to us, but we're living it out because He's living within us and can give us that help that we need. In our statement to our new members, we believe in one condition of eternal salvation, which is accepting by faith through God's grace the Lord Jesus Christ as one's personal Savior. There are some important, what I call, life-defining words that I would love to share definitions with for each one of us because I believe that we'll be blessed greatly by hearing these definitions. One of those words we need to know what it is is salvation. Sometimes we think of salvation and we think we've got it all down. We know exactly what salvation is, but it's a whole lot better than most of us realize. Salvation is actually a two-pronged term. It indicates that the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is saved from something, but he's also saved to something. There are two sides to that coin, both of which are fantastic. But when you put them together, our salvation is something for which every one of us should be giving thanks every single day of our lives. So we've got a two-pronged term here, from something saved to something else. The believer is saved, first of all, from sin. And we understand sin, but do we understand that we're saved from sin past, present, and future sin. When we think in terms of past, we're saved from the penalty of sin. Jesus paid it all. We don't have to pay that penalty. We don't get our just desserts for having sinned against a holy and righteous God. Jesus took all of that on himself. So the past sins were forgiven. Jesus took care of all of that on the cross. The present sins were even saved from the power of sin in our lives. We don't have to be enslaved to sin any longer because the power of sin was broken and we've got God's Holy Spirit living within us to help us go His way. We don't have to go the wrong way. And we're saved from future with regard to sin. We will be saved even from the presence of sin one day. Can you imagine that? Have you heard yourself saying recently, what is this world coming to? Anybody think that at least or say that what is this world coming to well i'll tell you what this world is not going to be that world is going to be entirely different we'll be saved even from the presence of sin there won't be any there so we're looking at the two prongs of sin we're saved from something and one of the things that we're saved from is sin at the same time you can throw in we're saved from satan and from death and from hell and that believer is saved to a new life a victorious, eternal life with Christ in heaven. The believer is saved from the guilt of sin, the pollution of sin, slavery to sin, the penalty of sin. The believer is saved to a state of righteousness, holiness, freedom, blessing, and eternal life. When we say, are you saved? We're asking a lot. Do you have salvation? Are you saved from all of that garbage that I mentioned to all of those beautiful things that God has given to us through salvation? 
The believer is saved from hopelessness to hope, and not an imaginary kind of hope, not a a, a hope I wish it would happen, but the kind of hope that means it's certain, it just hasn't happened yet, but it will because God said that it would. Picture this in your mind, a vile criminal, and you can fill in the blanks, you can fill in his record, And, and let's say he's got a record a mile long. And in that are all the gross, evil, wicked sins. And this vile criminal has been pardoned for all of his crimes. He's been released from his incarceration. He's been released from a terrible dungeon-like atmosphere. And not only was he released from all of that, he was given a key to the city, and he was immediately made the chief justice of the Supreme Court. Now picture that situation and then think about salvation. It's much better. The contrast is much greater. What a great thing God gives us in salvation. There's another expression that is used in that doctrinal principle, accepting by faith. We believe in one condition of salvation, and it is accepting by faith that personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean, accepting by faith? There are a lot of words that express that thought in the Scripture. In Acts chapter 16, verse 31, the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? He was really impressed with these guys. He was impressed with them because they didn't live the way normal people lived. There was something about them that drew him to the Lord Jesus, and he said, what must I do to be saved? And the answer they came back with was, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation. You do that and you'll be saved. That word believe when it is properly understood expresses the idea of what it is to accept the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Saving faith is not mere intellectual assent to a doctrine. It involves a whole lot more than that. And once again, there are those who know all about Jesus. They could pass an exam that maybe even some of us would not be able to pass. It's not just believing Jesus was a real person who existed, who actually walked here on this earth. That's not it. It's not enough. It's not enough to know that Jesus lived a sinful life, that he died an unfair and cruel death, or even to say, I understand he rose from the tomb, and I, I, can, I can even agree that that could be true. That's still not enough. That's not saving faith. It's not believing all those things, and that's the end of it. And do you know why you've heard myself, and I know Pastor Kevin has said this before. He said it this morning, in fact. Even demons believe. Demons believe that far, and they are very, very orthodox. They believe stronger, I would dare guess, than many of us believe about Jesus couple of examples from the scriptures. James chapter 2 verse 19 tells us that demons are monotheistic. Demons believe in one God. Here's what James 2.19 says. You believe that God is one, and James is saying that to his readers, and he's saying that by extrapolation to each one of us as God the Holy Spirit inscripturated that and is bringing that to our attention. He's, he's telling us on the heels of Do you know what? It's not enough to say you have faith. Your faith has to work. 
That work isn't going to save you, but it's not real faith if it doesn't work. That faith should make a change. That should make a difference in all of our lives. And on the heels of that argument, he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. And here's how much they believe. And shudder. Can you imagine that? They are extremely monotheistic. They believe there's one God, and they shudder at that. The demons knew Jesus. It's a little thunder. That's perfect for this message. And the more lightning, the better. (laughs) The demons knew Jesus very well. And in fact, many of the demons knew Jesus very well. Mark chapter 1, verse 34 says, And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. (laughs) I told you the kind of day I was having, didn't I? You didn't believe me. (laughs) You were just about to hear from Kate Bilo. (laughs) But I silenced Kate. Don't worry, she said. She said, it'll all pass. (laughs) Okay, so we're, we're establishing the fact that the demons, who may very well be present in a lot more situations than we think, The demons knew Jesus. The demons recognized Jesus as being the Holy One of God, and they recognized Him as having the power to destroy them. This comes from Mark chapter 1, verse 2. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Am I establishing a case for their orthodoxy? They're monotheistic. They know Jesus. There's no question that they would say, no, there was nobody ever named Jesus who walked on this planet, and there was nobody named Jesus who ever cast us out and healed sick and did all the other kinds of things. Demons also recognize the deity of Christ. Mark chapter 3, verse 1, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And the demons knew that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. In Luke chapter 4, verse 41, And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. They knew that he was the Messiah, the anointed one of God. They knew all of this. But I don't think anybody is going to say that demons had saving faith. They stopped short. Saving faith involves three elements, and I want to share that with you. Three elements, because sometimes people sit there very complacently thinking, well, sure, I believe Jesus. I've heard all the stories from the time I was a little one. I understand Christmas, and I understand Easter, and I know all about who Jesus was, and I believe that Jesus did all those things that they said that he did. But saving faith involves at least three elements. The first one is knowledge. We have to understand who Jesus really is. That obviously involves our intellect. It emphasizes that there are certain basic truths that need to be believed for salvation. Jesus claimed to be God. Saving faith involves the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to believe the basic truths fundamental to our salvation, fundamental to our sinfulness, 
We need to understand that all of us have sinned. All of us are in need of a Savior. We need to understand that Jesus is the only one who can save, the only one who can take away our sins. Christ's substitutionary sacrifice and His bodily resurrection are all part of that. We need to understand, knowledge-wise, who Jesus really is. Because you know what? You could describe to a kid Santa Claus and say, his name's not really Santa Claus, it's Jesus. Don't you want to receive Jesus? And the kid would say, well, certainly I want to receive Jesus. That is not the intellectual part that needs to happen. We need to understand who really Jesus is before we're going to receive him. There's a second element of saving faith, and that's what we call conviction. Conviction, and this is going to sound bad because I'm going to use the word emotion. It does involve emotions. It does involve feeling. It involves the intense feeling that, yes, this is mine. I accept this. I am going to take this to myself. That's what that conviction is. It emphasizes that a person not only has intellectual awareness of the truths, but there's an inner conviction of the truthfulness of this whole thing. We accept what Jesus has done on our behalf. We don't just hear about it, but we take it to ourselves. And then the final element is trust. As a result of knowledge about the Lord Jesus and a conviction that these things are true, there must be a settled trust, a moving of the will, a decision must be made. And the Moody Handbook of Theology calls this a moving of one's will. And let me explain what that is. Some of you have, have heard me explain this before. You won't hear it probably too many more times, I promise you. So bear with me if you've heard me explain this before. It's a, to me, it's a great illustration of what an act of the will is. An act of the will goes beyond just the knowledge that says, yes, I agree with that, I agree with that, I agree with that. Uh, we need to go be, beyond that and say, I agree with that, and I take that to myself, and by an act of my will, I want to have that personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Act of the will. We used to go down the shore very, very sparingly as a family. That would be my wife, myself, and our two little boys. We would go down every once in a while just so they could experience it. We aren't really beach people. And I know, sorry, some of you are really beach people. But what we would do is um, what we would do anywhere and everywhere. It didn't matter where it was. We wanted to play ball. So we'd go to the beach so we could play ball in the water. And um, I hate cold water. And the ocean always seems a lot colder than other places. So we'd be standing there. The boys would run in with the ball, and they would be wanting to make double plays, and you need a third person to make a double play. And we'd throw the ball around real fast and try to get an imaginary runners, a couple of imaginary runners out. And they'd be out there, and they would be encouraging me to come into the water, and I'd be looking at that water and saying, I hate cold water. I knew I would be in the water sooner or later. I had to make that decision. But to a certain extent, all it was was mental gymnastics. I'm going in the water. I know I am. An act of the will was that moment that said, here I go. Do you understand that act of the will? Here I go. And then I went and I tried to get under as quickly as I could and get it over with. Um, not a toe, you know, toe here, toe there. Just, just jump in. To me, that's an act of the will. Some of you had an act of the will this morning. How many of you, when you're Whatever it is that you use to wake yourself up in the morning, whenever that went off, how many of you jumped up and said, hooray, it's morning? Um, maybe a few of you did. How many of you said, do I have to get up right now? You knew you were going to get up sooner or later. That's the mental gymnastics. That's the exercise. You knew you were going to get up sooner or later. But when you said, okay, here we go, and you got up, that was an act of the will. 
And that's what we're talking about here. Saving faith involving three elements. Knowledge, correct knowledge of who Jesus is. Conviction. I apply this in my own life and trust. Trust means that I am going to invite this one that I now know all about and I'm convinced that he's the right one to save me. I'm going to invite him to actually do that. There are four questions I'd like to ask. First question is, how are faith and works related to each other? That's a question that often comes up. And a lot of times we hear this. We hear people say, you're not saved by works. You can't work your way to heaven. You'll never get there on your own merits. And we hear that a lot to the point that we begin to think, well, I guess it's not very important if I live a good life or not. It's not important to your salvation if you do, but it is important to being a child of God, that we live like a child of God. So here's the relationship of faith and works. I can't think of better verses than three of them that appear in Ephesians chapter 2 that tell us about that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. It puts the cart before the, or the, the horse before the cart where it belongs. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now let me stop there. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace is God giving us something that we don't deserve. It's His gift. We haven't earned grace. We don't merit grace. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. Faith is taking God at His word. Faith is believing God. So it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Do you understand? Nobody's ever saved himself. Nobody's ever saved herself. Nobody has ever impressed God so much that God is going to offer you salvation. That can't be done. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's the gift of God. God offers. What do you do with a gift? You receive it, right? Do you take out your wallet and say, can I pay for that? No, what is it about a gift that somebody wouldn't understand in that situation? It is the gift of God. And in case we haven't grasped it yet, for a fifth time in these verses, he says that it's not by anything that we can do. He says, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So does that mean works are unimportant? No, because it goes on, verse 10. For we are his workmanship. He works. We're his workmanship. He's done a beautiful thing in us by giving us that gift of salvation. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He didn't create us and save us to be horrible people. He created us and saved us so that we could live a life that would draw people to him when they see him in us. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And now that we're saved, those good works can be produced within us by his Holy Spirit, as we heard about this morning. God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How are faith and works related to each other? Works are important, but not for salvation. They're what James was saying Show me your faith by your works. Second question. How would you answer someone if he said this? I believe there are many roads that lead to heaven. It doesn't matter which road you take as long as you are sincere. Have you ever heard that? Ever hear anybody say that? 
So how would you answer somebody if you said, there are many roads, all roads lead to heaven. The, the main thing is that you're sincere and God's going to reward your sincerity. All you have to do is try somehow you don't have to go any particular way. Well, here's, here's how I would answer that. I would say, you know what, that's an interesting theory. How would you like to hear Jesus' theory on that? Here's what Jesus said. I am the way the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I don't know about you, but I would rather listen to Jesus than to you or me or anyone else. Jesus said that. What would Peter have said in answer to that? Well, Peter, we mentioned last week, was an example of one of those disciples who had a dramatic change. He's the one who denied the Lord Jesus three times when the Lord Jesus was taken to trial and then he was crucified. He denied him three times. He was huddled with the rest of them in fear, the rest of the disciples. And then all of a sudden, after Jesus' resurrection, here was the most dynamic evangelist that you could imagine. And this What I'm about to quote from Peter took place in Acts chapter 4. He was before the rulers, the elders, the scribes, Caiaphas, Annas, the whole high priestly family. He was there because he and John had just been instruments of God in healing a crippled man. They were brought before all of these authorities to answer for a very, very good thing that they had done. But it was as if they had committed a crime. And so they were asked, by what power did you do this? And the answer came back, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Can you imagine that audacity? We're talking about the authorities, the ones who had Jesus crucified, and he couldn't help but say, by the name of Jesus, by the way, whom you crucified. I'm amazed at that. And then as he continued speaking to them, he said, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So they said, In what power and in whose name did you do this? And he said, By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There's no other name among men whereby we must be saved. Many roads that lead to heaven, doesn't matter which road you take as long as you're sincere. Jesus didn't agree with that. Peter didn't agree with that. Let's try one more example. Let's try Paul. Think Paul agreed with that statement? No. Here's what Paul said, Acts 26. I myself, and and incidentally, let's see if he really had some sincerity in what he was doing. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This man is obsessed with wiping out Christianity in its infancy. Was he sincere? He was 
absolutely sincere. You don't get any more sincere than that. At his own expense, he was going from city to city, from synagogue to synagogue to try to stamp them out. Part of his testimony comes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Can you imagine that? Do you think he would be saying, as long as you're sincere, well, wait a minute, you couldn't be any more sincere and sincerely wrong than he was. Sincerity is not the answer. Third question, how would you answer someone if he criticized Christians for being narrow-minded by saying there is only one way to be saved? Because nobody wants to be called narrow-minded. No one wants to be viewed as exclusive or unloving or arrogant or probably the worst thing you can say about somebody today is that they're intolerant. So how would you answer somebody who accuses Christians of being so narrow-minded? Well, what I like, to, I like to say to people is that I don't believe that Christians are narrow-minded, but I believe Christians are narrow, and I think there's a big difference. Christians are narrow, and Christians are narrow when it comes to truth, and everybody else is narrow when it comes to truth. So why not be narrow about the greatest truth of all, our eternal salvation? Truth is always narrow. Have you ever thought about that? If it wasn't narrow, it wouldn't be truth. Now, we're, we're running a little short on time. I was going to ask Steve Darrow to come up and help me. Now, imagine that Steve is up here, okay? Steve is up here helping me, and Steve will help anybody do anything. He's a wonderful guy, and Steve would have helped me because he's totally uninhibited. But if Steve were up here, I would say, Steve, trying to establish the fact that truth is always narrow, let's, let's use as an example mathematics. Mathematics. Well, Steve, two and two equals what? You can answer me from there if you don't mind. Okay, uh, would you say approximately four? No. no. Would you say two and two equals five? No. Would you say that it really doesn't matter if I'm doing some math and two plus two? It doesn't. I could put any number in there, couldn't I? Okay. Is he narrow-minded? Is he narrow-minded? No, he's narrow. He's narrow because truth is narrow, and nobody would accuse him of being narrow-minded if he said two plus two equals four, and he stuck to it, which he was going to stick to. How about decimal points? Does it matter? I have a one and a zero, zero, zero. Does it matter where I put the decimal point if I say, I'm going to give to you? I'm going to move that decimal point over just one number. Does it matter if I do that or if I put it at the very end? Would you rather have me move it one or would you rather I do it to the very end? Does that little tiny, tiny dot make difference? Am I being narrow-minded if I say, it doesn't matter where I put it, I can put it anywhere. Would you rather I give you $1,000 or a buck? I think... Most of you would rather you get a buck. <laughs> How about medicine and dentistry? Uh, does it matter? Truth, would you, would you want a narrow-minded surgeon? Or a narrow surgeon? I would. 
Would you want a surgeon who says, yeah, you know what? The way you're describing that pain, it's somewhere in your abdomen. So we're going to cut, and I'm going to keep looking until we find it. Or would you rather have a narrow guy who says, we're going to get the MRI, we're going to get x-ray, we're going to get ultrasound, we're going to get all these things. We're going to make the smallest cut possible. I'm going to know exactly where it is. Are you going to say to him, boy, are you narrow-minded? Can I have a second opinion? Can I have somebody who doesn't care about where he operates? Truth is narrow everywhere. Nobody has a problem with it, but they have a problem with it in the area that deals with salvation for all of eternity. Someone could be narrow-minded and right or narrow-minded and wrong. The question that's important is not is it narrow, but is it true? And if Jesus said what he said, then if we want to be narrow about that, it's got to be true because Jesus said it. Last question. Most important practical question. If you were to stand at the gate of heaven tonight and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would your answer be? Why should I let you into my heaven? <coughs> Excuse me, let me give you a couple. You tell me whether, the, whether this would get you into heaven or not. I've tried to live a good life. Would that get somebody into heaven? Is that what's their answer? You know the answer to that. How about I've never killed anyone? I've never done anything really wrong. Would God be impressed enough to let somebody into heaven under those bases? No. Nope. I've given a lot of money to charity, to church, and to worthy causes. Closer, right? No cigar. Not going to get us into heaven. Fourthly, I've been very religious. For as long as I can remember, I've been to church every Sunday. Worthy of heaven? Not yet. There are a lot of people far worse than I am. Maybe God grades on the curve and I can get into heaven. It's not going to work. I have given my life to humanitarian causes. The world is a lot better because I was here, and God no doubt has taken note. He should let me into heaven. Not what the Bible says. I know more about God and more about Jesus than anyone I've ever known. We understand that's not going to get him into heaven. How about this? I have accepted by faith through God's grace the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. God says, you may come in on the merits of my Son, whom you've received. That's the basis of salvation. Will you pray with me? And I'd like to encourage everybody to close your eyes and to bow your head. And I want to ask if you have never acknowledged who Jesus is, recognized who he is, been convicted that he's the only way of salvation, the only way you're going to get to heaven, trusted him as your Savior, invited him into your life, and told him that you want to receive the free gift that he's offered. I'm going to pray, and this is a prayer similar to what I prayed years ago when my father shared with me this same message in a whole lot simplistic terms, but as a, as a kid could understand. And he encouraged me to pray this prayer, and I encourage you to pray a prayer similar to this. It's not a formula. It's no magic words about it, but if, if this expresses the desire of your heart, I encourage you to pray this right now. Heavenly Father, I know that I am a sinner. Your word tells us that we've all sinned and fall short of your glory. And I know that I am not different than everybody else on the planet. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I can't save myself. But I understand you've offered me a free gift of salvation if I trust the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross for me. And right now, 
I understand that he said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. I hear him right now, not through my ears necessarily, but I hear him knocking. I open the door and I invite Christ to be my Savior. Now, if everyone would keep your eyes closed and your heads bowed, I'd like to encourage you, if you just prayed to receive Christ, and that's, that's what you just did, you asked him to be your Savior, and you've done that for the first time, if you would just look up at me and make eye contact with me. Look at me, make eye contact. That's not going to save you. But someday in the future, you're going to be able to look back on that moment and say, you know what, I meant business with the Lord. And I remember, I looked at that guy. I looked at him because he said, if I just prayed to receive Christ as my Savior. I can't see all of you, but I thank the Lord for, for you who, who've looked at me. And I, I trust you understand. And we can talk at any time or talk with somebody you know that knows the Lord Jesus and we can follow up. But Heavenly Father, thank you so very, very much for the clear gospel of the Lord Jesus, whom we've been getting to know this summer and getting to know not just about, but getting to know personally. And my prayer is that every single one of us will be in heaven together one day. And we thank you for this now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.